Good morning. Uh, welcome to Cross Point. For those who are here in person and those who are here online, um, if you don't know me, my name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point. This is the last Sunday in a series called uh, This Truth Changed My Life. And to set the stage for the sermon, you first need to know something about um, my life in order to know how a gospel truth has changed it. So, here we go. I am an extrovert. I know. Some of you might be shocked completely, but, but it's true. I've been described as someone who is highly relational and social. You know, I'm the person on that plane that sits next to a random person, sees them as a captive audience for the next at least hour at a minimum, and try to talk and uh, have a conversation with them. Some people like that. Some people are annoyed by that. And yes, I've had both reactions. <laughs> but I'm the stereotypical type A, number two on the Enneagram, highly relational, classic extrovert. That's something on the surface level that how people would describe who I am. Now, if you allow me for a little bit more vulnerable with you, for me, being an extrovert stems from a fear of mine, the fear of being alone, the fear of being rejected, the fear of not being truly known on a deeper level by other people. It's true. I fear being alone. If I'm by myself in a car or in our house, I'll turn on the radio, listen to a podcast, listen to music, listen to a book, just to get rid of the silence so I don't feel alone. Now, I know I'm not the only one who has struggled with this feeling of being alone. According to a study done by the Barna Group, 31% of U.S. adults of U.S. adults feel lonely at least some of each day. That is three out of ten people feel lonely at some part of each day. Now this fear of being alone is something that I've struggled with and dealt with the majority of, of my life. Um, I'm the second of four kids, so classic middle child syndrome as, as well. Uh, my parents loved each and one of us greatly. I know that to be true. But in my self-centered heart growing up, I felt like I had to outperform my siblings to get attention and affirmation. I felt like I was stuck living in the shadow of my older brother's successes and trying to overcome the attention that my youngest sibling got. Then as I got older and I, I moved into middle school and high school, my fear of being alone and fear of being rejected revealed itself in the sin of people-pleasing, doing things so people would like me more. Because of this, gaining more affection from people was the core motivation behind many of my actions. This attitude of people-pleasing for affection, which is really just a works-based relationship with no concept of grace, this attitude was in my mind even when I got saved and started following Jesus during the sophomore year um, in high school. Now, when I got saved, I knew that I was saved by grace and only by God's forgiveness of, of my sins through Christ's sacrifice on the cross that I was able to enter into a, a right relationship with, with God. But at the same time, I thought that it was up to me to keep the relationship going. For example, when I sinned, I felt like I had to do something good to somehow enter back 
into a good and right standing before God. Because I didn't want to be separated from God. I feared being alone in my sin and feared God rejecting me. And I struggled with this. I struggled with this for the first few years of being a Christian. I was operating under a works-based mentality. And I didn't even realize it. I didn't really understand the full concept of God's grace on my life. I didn't really understand some of the uh, doctrines of Christianity. I had yet to fully understand what it meant to be in a union with Christ and the implications that come from that. So maybe you can relate with me. Maybe you too fear being alone. Maybe I'm not the only one here this morning that's felt that. Maybe you felt this fear of being separated or rejected by God. Maybe some of you are wrestling with this this very morning. Now, I have good news for you. God loves you and desires a relationship with you. And for believers, God is always with you. You can feel secured in Christ this morning. For believers, we have this truth that we are in a union with Christ and that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. So this morning we're going to address two points. First point, what does it mean that believers are in a union with Christ? And second point, uh, how believers should live out their union with Christ. So we see these two points in Romans 8, so if you have your Bibles with you, please meet me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 31. Verse 31 of Romans chapter 8 says this, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. I just want to pause right there for a moment as we see in these few verses glimpses of our first point. Our first point of what does it mean that believers are in a union with Christ. Now when you hear the word union, I want you to think of two things joining together. So when we, when we hear union with Christ, we should think of how we are joined together with Jesus. Pastor and theologian John Piper defines union with Christ this way. The reality of all the ways that the Bible pictures our human connectedness to Christ, in which He is indispensable for every good that we enjoy. Now in the verses that we just read, we see three of many, only three of many ways that we are connected to Christ. We see that believers are, one, chosen by God, two, believers are justified by God in Christ, three, believers have an advocate in Christ. Point number one, believers are chosen by God in Christ. We see this in Romans 31, or 8, 31 through 33, so I just want to read those verses again. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. 
how will he not also grant him everything, us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Believers are God's elect. They are chosen by God. Just like how we elect government officials, God has elected people to be his chosen followers. The difference is instead of many people electing one person to represent them, we see God, one God, electing many people to represent him here on earth. God has casted his ballot, which includes people of all time who are believers, followers of the one true God through Jesus Christ, Old Testament saints, believers in the early church, people who have been passed away who believed in Christ, current believers and people who in the future will put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. All are part of God's elect. We know this to be true because of what Paul writes previously in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. So if you want to just back up a little bit in Romans 8, uh, verses 28 through 30, it says this, We know that all things work together for good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now from these verses, we see that Paul writes, uh, then if God is, it's from these verses, rather, in the verses 28 through 30, that Paul writes, Verse 31, that if God is for us, who is against us? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Because God is the one who justifies. It's because that we are chosen by God that we can be confident that God is for us. Now, I know this can seem like a simple truth that God is for us, uh, but if I can be honest for a moment When life is crazy busy, when stress is high, when family drama is happening, when the effects of living in a sinful world are in your face, when you feel alone, when an illness takes an effect on your life or someone that you've loved, you know, sometimes for myself, I, I just need to be reminded that God is for me. God is for you. He is for all who believe in Jesus as their Savior. Sometimes I I just need to hold on to that simple truth for comfort, that God is for me, and that it's not random, or it's based off my performance, or how good I can be. God is intentionally for me, Because believers are chosen by God in Christ. Now, I just want to note this, that how that whole process happens is highly debated amongst Christians, and I'm not going to get into that debate. Even though the how is debatable, the what, the truth, must be affirmed. The truth that believers are chosen, because that is what is revealed to us in Scripture. 
Now, if you want to talk on a deeper level as to how, and I encourage you, please text me, email me. I would love to have that conversation with you um, and, and, have, and go deeper with that. But for now, let's just affirm the truth that people are chosen. We don't know how, but we can affirm that truth. Now, a second way that we are connected to Christ, the first way believers are chosen by God in Christ, and the second way that we are connected to Christ is that the believers are justified by God in Christ. Believers are justified by God in Christ. And we see this in verses 33 through 34 in Romans 8. So I just want to read those again. 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. And he's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Here we see that God justifies the believer. When we see the word justify, we should think of a courtroom. In the courtroom, we see God as a just judge. He has the ability to declare who is righteous and who is guilty of their sin. We also see that there's a defendant in the courtroom, a person who's being accused of a crime. And that defendant is you and me and all of humanity. We have been accused of sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And what this truth of justification looks like is that if we, the defendant, standing before God the Father, guilty of our sin, we know that our punishment of sin is is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Or in other words, eternal separation from God. We stand guilty and our punishment has been declared. But then Jesus, Jesus comes into the courtroom and says, I've decided to take on your punishment. You no longer need to pay the penalty for your sin. I will stand in your place so that you are no longer guilty of your sin, but declared innocent and righteous. So that if we trust in what Jesus says and what he has done on his, uh, through his death on the cross, then we will be justified by God the Father. This is the picture that I want you to bring to mind when we see that God justifies the believer. That a person who puts their faith in Christ can stand before God innocent and righteous because Christ has paid the penalty for their sin. Again, God justifying believers might sound like a simple truth, something that we would all affirm and say amen to. But how many of us, including myself, have tried to justify ourselves, yourselves, before God, either in a positive or negative connotation? For example, trying to justify yourself in a negative connotation. Let's say you have said something that was sinful. Maybe you gossiped or lied to your parents. Or maybe you looked at something that was sinful. Maybe it was porn. Maybe it was something that you were greedy and you were wanting something that someone else had. You were coveting something. Or maybe that you did an action that was sinful. You had a moment of laziness. You had a moment of being a glutton or you were being controlled by substance other than the Holy Spirit. Your first thought might be, there is no way I can approach God. I have totally just blown it big time. So you go and try to do 
good things in order to gain back a good standing with God. This would be an example of trying to justify yourself in the negative. You've done something negative and you try to do something to justify yourself to get into a right standing with God. What about an example of trying to justify yourself um, in, in the positive connotation? Let's say you've just done something really good. Let's say you served at VBS for an entire week, all the nights. Or maybe you sacrificed for your family over the weekend. You worked long, hour, long hours. You've done all the chores. You've, you've served as much as you can serve. Or maybe you've served in student ministry for like over five years. You've put in your time. You've you sacrificed your time, money, and energy for students. Maybe you're like, God, you know, I, I, I tithe. I tithe quite a bit. And it's easy for us to look at the good things we've done and then say, because I've done something good, God, I deserve something good in return. This would be an example of trying to justify ourselves with a positive connotation. Something We've done something good, so therefore God owes us somehow for that we can demand something. In either example, negative or positive, you're either trying to take away or add something to Christ's sacrifice. As you think God loves you less or God loves you more, based on your own actions instead of Christ's work on the cross. Don't get it wrong. God loves the believer because they are justified in Christ. You cannot add, you cannot take away from the work that Jesus did on the cross to make you justified before God. It is simply because Jesus' work on the cross that you are declared innocent, not because of anything good you or I have done. It is in this way that believers are justified by God in Christ. And we need to remind ourselves of that truth daily. The third way we see in Romans 8, uh, verses 31 through 34, how believers are connected to Christ is that Christ uh, is, the, is an advocate for the believer. Believers have an advocate in Christ. Verse 34 says this, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. In this verse, we see that our union with Christ is much more than what Jesus has done in the past of choosing believers and dying for them. We see that he is also presently active in interceding for believers. Louis Burkhoff says about this, uh, Christ's intercession in his systematic theology. He is ever, he being Jesus, is ever making intercession for those that are his, pleading for their acceptance on the basis of his completed sacrifice and for their safekeeping in the world and making their prayers and services acceptable to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I know for me, I find this to be a very comforting truth that Jesus isn't just sitting back. You know, he's like, well, I, I did my part 2,000 years ago. Humans, now, your turn, go. Now, it, that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not just sitting back. 
He is being active in the present moment, right now, interceding for all believers. He's being our advocate to God the Father right now. Which means that what is ever on, is on your heart this morning, brothers and sisters, Jesus knows. It's on His, and He's advocating for you. Now, this is something that I need to be reminded of when I'm alone, when I'm exhausted, when I'm scared. Christ knows what's on my heart, and He's interceding on my behalf to God the Father in the present. Now, these are just three ways of many ways, like I said, that believers are connected to Christ. But there are many more implications of being in union with Christ. And like I said, these are just a few examples. Let's move to our second point this morning. How believers should live out their union with Christ. How believers should live out their union with Christ. Let's read Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In closing, in these verses of Romans 8, we see that believers should live out their union with Christ with confidence with confidence. Not in confidence in ourselves or yourself, but rather confidence in Christ. We should have our confidence that for all believers, nothing can separate us from His love. Verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or or danger or sword I mean, we can easily put in words, can, can stress in my life, can busyness, can, can being made fun of for what we believe, can opposition to the Christian faith, can a pandemic, can, can economic failure or inflation, can war, what about when, when people close to us die, can any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no. The answer is no. Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means whether we are alive in the present time, or if we die and go to heaven. No spiritual forces, no earthly kings or presidents or prime ministers, nothing can ever 
separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Brother, sister in Christ, this morning, you are secured. It is a truth. This is not a feeling. It is a truth. If you are a follower of Christ, you are secured in your relationship with God today. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything Jesus has done. Amen and amen. Now this past Friday night, we had a a church-wide movie um, outside in our our backyard space here at Crosspoint. We watched um, a movie called Seven Days in Utopia, and in that movie there was an acronym SFT, and and the main character of the movie would put SFT on the golf balls um, before he hit them off the tee. And SFT stands for uh, see it, uh, feel it, trust it. Um, And SFT in the movie served a a dual purpose. One purpose was for the main character, how he approached each golf shot, and to visualize the shot in his mind, to feel the mechanics in his swing, and then to trust what he had been taught, that it will help his golf swing. Later in the movie, the main character learns a spiritual understanding of SFT. See God's face, feel his presence, and trust his love. Now, for us believers, I think we need to remind ourselves of of SFT, especially when things in life can distract us. Satan can easily tempt us with worries and fears. He tempts us with lies and deceptions. Like, you know, if you don't do this, how do you know that God's going to love you? Or what you did last night was such an awful sin. How do you think you can even approach God this morning? Or if God truly loves you, then why, why doesn't he answer everything you want right now? You know, if God will truly never leave me, then why do I feel so distant from him? Well, those are all lies and deceptions that Satan tempts us with. And it's in those moments, in those times that we need to remember, I believe, SFT. To see his face. To see God's face is another way to say that you know who God is. You recognize his character. You tell yourself the truths of Scripture. You remind yourself what is said about believers in God's own word. You remind yourself what is revealed to you by the God of the universe and how he views you as a believer. Feel his presence. For believers, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. God is ever with us. You know, we need to put any distraction we have aside. We need to sit and be still before God and focus on him. Trust his love. You know, don't trust in your own abilities or good works, but trust in his love for you displayed in Christ on a cross over 2,000 years ago and his present love for you today as he is continuing to intercede for believers in the present moment. Maybe you're sitting here and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior 
of your life. Maybe you've always tried to justify yourself before God based on your own good works. I pray that today would be the day that your eyes are open to the gospel, that you see His face, you feel His presence, and you trust His love. You know, if this is you, I hope and I pray that you would tell someone today that you desire to have a right relationship with God. You know, talk to one of us pastors or find an elder or find a friend. Tell a parent this morning, if this is you, that you desire this. And if you, if you fall in this camp and, and you have that desire, I want you to have confidence in Christ's love for you. It is with confidence and boldness that believers should live out their union with Christ. And we're going to take a time this morning to take communion. Today is Communion Sunday at Crosspoint. This is when Crosspoint offers communion to all believers who are here in attendance today. Communion is, is designed for only believers. So whether you call Crosspoint home or you're just visiting, it's a time to remember Christ's sacrifice and His love for us serves a purpose of reminding ourselves of that truth, of our union with Him. It also serves a time for self-examination, asking the Spirit to search your heart for any sin in your life or to reveal any distractions that are keeping you from experiencing the present reality of God dwelling within you. And then repent and seek forgiveness for those things as we remember together the sacrifice that Jesus gave so that we can be forgiven of our sin and be justified before God. So I want you to take a few moments, reflect, and then we will take the elements together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took bread. When we had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the juice. Father, we are so grateful for your love for us. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you were willing to leave heaven, come down to earth, Live a perfect life and die, die a death on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Christ, and as we take time to remember your sacrifice and your love for us, God, I just pray that we would be able to sit back, we'd be able to be quiet before you, remind ourselves of your word and what you say about us, that we'd see your face, that we'd feel your presence, and we would trust your love today and for the rest of our lives. Pray all these, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, I just want to read this. Now, to him who is able to protect you from stumblings and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish, with great joy, 
to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority for all time, now and forever. Amen. As you go this week, be confident because of your union with Christ, because of what He did for you and how He loves you. Remind yourself daily that nothing can separate you, if you're a believer, from the love of God.